All right, let's get into this. It feels like this lesson was was guided to my heart this last week. We have a natural tendency to, I have, sorry, not we, I have a natural tendency to move on from negative experiences and grief very quickly and mourning. My grandmother died this past year and I, I quickly moved on from that. And my, my dad died in 2009, just before myself and Alfreda got married. And my grandfather died at one point in time. And, and, and each one of us can reflect back when somebody died in our lives. It was, it was very hard, but some people, some people really hold on to those emotions for a long time. And I've been asking myself the question, how is it that I can move on so, so quickly and, and get on with my life? And I've realized it's because I believe in something. If I, if I can use psychological terms for it, it's logotherapy. Logotherapy. So a psychologist that was stuck in a concentration camp in the Second World War, Viktor Frankl, he couldn't understand why some people in the concentration camp died and some people lived, but they all were in the same environment. Some people would wake up in the morning and they just stay in bed. They would defecate the bed and decide to die and they would die. Other people hang in, hung in there and they made it outside of the concentration camp. But because he was a qualified psychologist, he asked everybody in the camp and he, he sort of used his time in, 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 I think it was in Auschwitz to figure out what, what, what is it that makes some people continue living and some people dying. And through his exploration, he made it out of the camp, by the way. And then he wrote a book, which you can go purchase, by the way. I think it's called The Meaning of Life or something like that. I did read it. But he then, he then concluded that the people that survived the concentration camp were, believed that there was something waiting for them outside of the camp. They believed that they still had a future, that they still had hope, that they've got family members waiting for them, the people that gave up. Believe there is no future. What does it help me to get out of this camp? My family are all dead, so I might as well just die right now. And he developed a psychological theory called logotherapy. When you counsel somebody, somebody struggling with something, you say to them, you try to help them create a vision of the future that's positive and good. And that will help them to move forward. Psychotherapy created by Sigmund Freud is the opposite of that. Psychotherapy says, let's go back into your past, figure out what happened there, and then we'll be able to solve the issue that happened there, the way that your dad treated you or whatever happened, your, your mom died, whatever happened. If we solve that issue, you can be able to go forward. Now, I'm a firm prop proponent of logotherapy because the future hasn't been written yet. The future hasn't. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But you can work on tomorrow, you, whereas you can't change the past. We can't change the past. So I don't really believe that much in psychotherapy. We can talk forever about the past, but until you don't decide to move forward, nothing can really change. And so I think that's what sort of shaped my mind. It's like when somebody dies in my life, it's painful, it hurts, but I've got to move on because I can't change it. I've got to find a way to move forward and to have a vision for the future. Okay, so the quicker that I can envision a future without this person, the better it's going to be for me. Now, it's easy saying this, and I really don't want to sound harsh, but that was what, what, what was in my mind. Because, ladies and gentlemen, we have, we have some unfinished business from last year. And, and I apologize that I haven't really spoken on this, but I think it's very important to talk about this because we've lost some loved ones. I am a Christian. 
Because it's the only Christianity, it's the only religion in the world that solves mankind's biggest problem. Our biggest problem is not money, it is not disease, it is not science and the things related to it. Our biggest problem is this, that we will die and we don't know how to deal with it. We don't know. It's the most uncomfortable thing imaginable. And I want you to pause this morning for a moment and think about the loved ones you've lost in your life, the experience that you've had with death. And I want you to think about that for a moment. The very reason why Jesus came, what sets Jesus apart from any other founder of any religion, is that he conquered death. The very thing that none of us can deal with. We don't know how to deal with it. That's why Jesus came. Muhammad, the founder of Islam, his body is in a tomb in the Middle East. The Muslims go there every year to go look at a tomb. And if they were allowed to, they were allowed to touch his bones. They would be able to do that. His body is on the earth. They say Buddha, they've got one of his teeth preserved in a, in, a, in, a, in a museum in India. Some people claim that they've got some of his remains in a bottle. You can go touch it. Every year, thousands of people go to Jerusalem to go look at what? An empty tomb. Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. He has conquered death. He's the only person that gives us hope in death. He's the only person that makes it capable for us to survive beyond death. And so he's our Lord. And as Christians, sometimes we neglect to deeply think about that. Although we do church, we, we say we believe in Jesus. We don't get to the gravity of the situation. And the gravity of the situation has hit us last year. When people that used to sit in these pews have died, some of them very unexpectedly, and people that we hold dearly and that we love deeply. And I want to talk about that this morning and encourage us. I really want to encourage us because this is what we have to deal with. And, you know, if, if we are prepared for this into the future, it's going to be so much better for us. This lady was an incredible person. Her name was Sharon. I used to want to, there's, there's a song, I don't know if it's in the books, it's called Rose of Sharon. And I, I always used to, I used to call her Rose of Sharon because she was like a rose. I remember the first day that I, that I met her, she was standing on steps and she had these two beautiful little kids, little blonde headed boy and a little girl with red hair, cutest little ponytail. And they're standing there on the church steps. I get to meet her. You can see it in her, right? You can just look at this picture and you can see she must be a wonderful person. You can see it in her eyes. And she was an incredible person. And she experienced something that I wouldn't want to wish on anybody. That, that is alive. And I've told you the story before. Some of you know about this and some of you don't know. I'll briefly summarize it. Her son, I had a big impact in his life and I had the opportunity to, to teach him about Jesus. And I had the opportunity to, to baptize him as well. And we used to go gym together because he was, like a, he, was like a, he was like a little scrawny guy and he always wanted to be big. So we always wore clothes that was bigger than, than he actually, his, his, shoe, his feet was this size, he gets shoes that size. His waist was this size. He get pants this size with a big belt. He always wanted to be bigger. So he always wanted to go jump. And we had this heart-to-heart -heart relationship. And one day he phoned me and he said to me, that, that's her son, right? He said to me, man, I'm not feeling well. I said, was it your heart, your body? He says, well, it's my heart. So I said, okay, I'm, I'll, I'll see you a little bit later. I'll, I'll come see you. Then we can talk. We can have a heart-to-heart. Long story short, Sharon, she came to visit us by our house in that morning. And we asked, you know, how's, how's Timothy doing? And she said, no, well, he's not feeling well this morning. They had an argument or whatever. And anyways, later on, in, in, later on about lunchtime, we went over to their house and we had lunch with them. 
And then we left because Timothy wasn't there. We thought he'd went to the mall. He'd gone for a hike or, or we weren't sure. And then we went back on with the rest of our day. And then about four o'clock, we received the call. While we were having lunch with them in the house, right attached to the house in the, in, in the garage, her, her son had hung himself. And he's been there all the time. And I, I saw how this lady, I saw how a mother reacts when she sees her dead son. And that was one of the most vivid experiences in my life about what death does to a person. Any case, long story short, her husband died a horrific death not too long after that. And she died also a few years after that. And I think if I were to summarize how she died, I would say the only person left is that little red-haired girl. It's the only one that's left. What I, what, I, what I think happened to her is, honestly, I think that she died of a broken heart. And there's something as I prepared for this lesson that I'll never forget is that she, 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 she drove this Mercedes Benz of her husband. He was ill, so she took off the Mercedes Benz and she could drive it. And that was like sort of his holy grail. But in the rearview mirror, she put a photo of Timothy, the son that she had lost. And it's a beaut- it was such a beautiful picture for me about what it looks like, the symbolism of a mother that mourns for a child. Because every time she looks into the mirror, she sees her son. And I believe that's why her heart broke. Because every time, listen carefully, every time she looks back, she sees her son. She couldn't go forward. Every day she was reminded of what she had lost. Every day she was reminded of what she had had. And to be honest with you, it destructed her life. The question that I want to ask this morning is this. How do we, in that symbolism, how do we keep driving forward with the photo in the rearview mirror? How do, we, how do we keep going on with our lives knowing that we've lost somebody that we deeply love? How do we do that? And is it possible? Well, there's a wonderful scripture dealing with that. I'm just going to look at that scripture today. It's a wonderful text. The scholars tells us that this text is the most important prophecy that we have in the New Testament. It's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 to 18. You have your Bible, you're welcome to go there. Just six verses we're just going to deal with. And I want to give you a little bit of background. Those of you who are here on Sunday nights will know exactly what happened in Thessalonica. First of all, Paul the Apostle is on his second missionary journey. He's in Philippi. He's got a tough time in Philippi. Long story short, you want to go look at that? The lessons are all online. He's in Philippi. He's being persecuted. So they go to the next city. They go over to Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, Paul finds a very strong Jewish community. For three Sundays, he goes into the Sabbath and he reasons with the Jews and he proves to them that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, I just want to point this out again. If you go read the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul and you ask yourself the question, Paul, why did you do this? Why would you go into cities, be stoned, and beaten, be dragged outside of the city, and the people think you're dead. And then you would stand up again and go back into the same city and continue preaching about Jesus. Why would you do that? Paul would say, because in Jesus Christ is the solution to death. And people need to hear this. So he's in Thessalonica. He preaches. There are many people that believe and many people that don't believe. They hate him, the people that don't believe. They hate Paul. That's what you see right through the book of Acts. So he gets chased away. 
He runs away. He doesn't just stay close to Thessalonica. He runs away far. He wants to distance himself from this place because these people are aggressive and they hate his message. So he goes down to Athens. And if you look at the map from Thessalonica to Athens, it's a massive distance between the two places. And he sends back Timothy and Silas. He says, okay, guys, these new believers, they've been Christians for three weeks. I want you to go back and I want you to encourage them and strengthen them because they knew in the faith and they might lose their faith very easily in Jesus Christ. So he sends them back. And then eventually a little bit later, when he's in Corinth, I think it is, Silas and Timothy, they come back to him and they give him a report back. Hey, Paul, this is what's happening with that young church that you left in Thessalonica. And these are some of the questions that they have. And they raise quite a few that we don't know exactly what Timothy told Paul. But when we read the letter, we can sort of figure it out because Paul then goes and he says, okay, I'm going to write a letter. So Paul writes a letter and he says, okay, you take this letter back to the Thessalonians and you go read this letter to them based on what's going on in the church. This is the beautiful thing about the Bible because people think, well, the Bible is just a religious book that fell down from heaven. No, it's not. It's letters. It's stories. It's real. It's poetry that people wrote. It's historical accounts of 40 different people over a period of 1,600 years written in three different languages. It's not just nonsense. It's a library of letters. And so the book of First Thessalonians is the first letter that Paul writes to these Christians that have been Christians for like three weeks. Right? Everybody with me? And so he writes this book to respond to what's happening. We believe Scholars debate whether this is the earliest writing that we have. But this was written about 18 years after Jesus had died. And people debate between Thessalonians and Galatians which, ones, uh, which one is the, is, is the earliest. But a lot of things seems to be going on there. But one thing specifically that happened is this. Since the time that Paul preached to them and the time that Timothy and them arrived there, many of the Christians had died. And so they've got questions. Will the dead be missing the second coming of Jesus? Are the dead directly going to Jesus before us who are alive? Thirdly, will we see our beloved brothers and sisters again? These are legitimate questions, right? And Paul beautifully teaches on that in these six verses. It's like they were saying to Paul, you have taught us that Jesus is coming back. And you have told us to live as if he is coming soon, but what if we die before he comes? How do we? They're a young church. They don't have the theology that we have. They don't have the letters that we have. And so they want to know from Paul, how do we deal with this? Let's read the text together. First Thessalonians chapter 4. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I just want to make a few points. 
Firstly, look at the text. Paul doesn't say these people have died. He doesn't talk about dead people. What does he say? Specifically, it says those who have fallen asleep. In Paul's theology, people don't die. They go to sleep. We'll talk about that in a moment. That's not a new idea just related to Paul. We go back into the Old Testament, 2 Kings 2 verse 10. Then David rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. You go rest when you die. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2 says, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. These are totally different books written in different times by different people, and they all agree in the same thing. Sleeping and death has got some commonalities. So I would say that means at least two things. Number one, death is a temporary state. It's a temporary state. If we say that Jack is sleeping, we are saying that he will wake up again, right? People who go to sleep, I don't know if it's like that in your life, but they tend to wake up. Asleep means to lie down. Resurrection means to stand up. The early Christians adopted a very wonderful word for burying places of their loved ones. The, the Greek for koimeterion, which means a rest house for strangers or a sleeping place. It's the same place where we get the word cemetery from. It's a rest house, according to the Greek. The same word was used in the day for inns, and we would call it hotels or motels. So for the first century Greek person, <laughs> the place of burial would be a motel or a hotel. Now, that's certainly not what I think about when I drive in the cemetery. I want to get out of there, not sleep there. Do you, do you weep when your friend goes and sleeps in a hotel for the weekend? You don't. Because you know that they haven't disappeared from existence forever. Dying is simply checking in to the hotel. That's why I called this lesson checking in. The second thing about this is that death is a peaceful state. I want you to do this research, and I've done a podcast on this before as well. One of the greatest evidences for the existence of God. Because the atheist says, the atheist says, when you die, nothing continues to happen. But the atheist cannot explain why we have near-death experiences. There's been extensive research done on near-death experiences. People die, they are dead for minutes, sometimes hours. They get resurrected, they come alive again, and they tell us about what they saw. And you know what's very interesting? Most of the people that experience near-death experiences, you know what they all say? I didn't want to come back. You can go ask it. My, my, my mother's husband had exactly the same thing. They had to resuscitate him four times. He says it was the most incredible feeling to die because it's peaceful. You get released from this body that you carry. Well, for, for thousands of years, they saw the same thing. Isn't it the most wonderful place to be, that moment as you fall asleep? Who's got that? I mean, that is, that's incredible. It's like the worst feeling is not being able to sleep. The greatest feeling is actually going into that slumber. And then your kid wakes you up in that moment. You want to give them an elbow. Because it feels incredible to rest. That's what Paul is telling us here. That's what the Holy Spirit is telling us here. We think death is something totally different than what it really is. It's going to sleep. It's peaceful. So that's the first thing. Second thing, those who believe in resurrection will experience resurrection. That's what Paul is telling us in this text. Paul uses the phrase, we believe. 
We believe Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Therefore, we believe that when we die, we will be raised again. Our faith determines what will happen to us after we die. What makes us Christians is the fact that we believe Jesus Christ will be resurrected from the grave. My young son, Micah, we had a, sometimes we, I pull them aside one by one to have a heart to heart with them, to ask them, hey, my boy, how are you feeling, man? How's things at school? How does your heart feel? Do you, do you have some friends? And, and how, do you, how do you talk? How do you feel about being kind to people? How do you feel about academics? Well, what's happening in your schoolwork? Do you feel happy when you go to school? Do you have a relationship with your teacher? And so we have those conversations. And then I say, okay, my boy, what would you like your daddy to pray for you about today? And he'd say this or he'd say that. And, and then I'd bring, and we often talk about God. And, and in one of those conversations this week, he says to me, he says to me, Papa, some people believe Jesus is a myth. And it was interesting for him that he, 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 he wants to understand why is it that some people believe God is not real? And Papa, why is it that we believe? That's great. Let's have that question. And it was such a beautiful, holy moment for, for, for me because I could say to him, hey, my boy, you know what? We don't just believe this because it's some fairy tale that fell out of heaven and was created by something. The reason why we believe it is because there's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. And I said to him, my boy, let's go quickly. Let's go on to Google here. Yeah? I'll Google the actual tomb they believe Jesus was buried in. And I'll show you now the tomb is actually empty. And thousands of people every year, they go look at this empty tomb because it's real. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, ladies and gentlemen, we wouldn't be here today. Christianity wouldn't exist. The fact that 11 of the closest people in Jesus's life gave up their lives through horrible deaths is evidence that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Because people say, yeah, it's a made up story. Well, I'll be honest with you. I've made up stories in my life. I won't die for those stories. When it comes to death and the guy's about to chop off my head, I'll say, okay, sorry, it's, I, I made it up. It's like, where is his body? Well, it's, I don't know. We took it out of the tomb and we put it over there somewhere. But don't kill me. They died because they saw Jesus Christ die on a cross and they saw him raised from the dead. That's why they were willing to die for it. My boy, that's why we believe in Jesus. It's real. And if you believe in Jesus Christ in that way, you have access to eternal life because he will raise you from the grave. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the reason why we get baptized. We get baptized because we are uniting ourselves with Jesus Christ. We're being buried in water and raised to a new life. That is the resurrection. That's what Paul talks about here in Romans chapter 6. Well, don't you know? That all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we may live a new life. Listen to what he says. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. If you die, the text says, those who have fallen asleep in him. When you get baptized, you get baptized into him. So you are in Christ. The text says that if we have fallen asleep in him, he will resurrect us. Third point and last point, the living and the dead will be united at the second coming of Christ. That's what Paul is saying. I actually changed the words there. I don't like the word dead because Paul doesn't use it. So I'll rather say the living and the sleeping will be united at the second coming of Christ. 
Jesus, Paul says, himself will come down. And this is a terrifying text because it says sounds will accompany him. There will be a loud command, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. This is going to be a big event. The angel, the trumpet, the sound, the command of Jesus signals a glorious and powerful coming of Jesus to end it all. When we hear that sound, it's the end, ladies and gentlemen. It's the end of pain. It's the end of suffering. It's the end of arrogance. It's the end of a wicked world. It's the end of this planet. It's the end of Project Earth. It's over. Peter says, it goes further than that. Peter tells us that the elements will be destroyed. The planets will fall. The science scientists look at the universe and they say, look at these incredible planets. Peter tells us they will all be dissolved. It will end. Not just Earth, the universe. We think the universe is big. Yes, indeed, it is big. The heavens declare the glory of God. All that the universe does is shows us how big he is. We can't even measure the universe. And people think that they can measure God. And he's the one that holds it all in his hands. So Paul writes to the Christians, I declare to you, brothers, 1 Corinthians 15, and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at what? The last trumpet. It's the same trumpet that he talks about in Thessalonians. For the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable. In other words, they won't come in the same form. They'll be imperishable and we will be changed. So if we're alive when Jesus comes back, we'll be changed within an instant. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. Now to put that into perspective, this is what I think is going to happen. Jesus Christ is going to come back with a sound, with a voice, with a trumpet. And in that moment, the elements will be destroyed. The heavens will roar. It will be destroyed. And Jesus Christ will meet us face to face. We will instantaneously change. Christians will instantaneously change and will meet those who have died before with Christ in the air. Verse 17 talks about a word that we've heard in Christian circles. People talk about the rapture, which by the way, it's not really, it's not a biblical word at all. It's not in the text. But the idea is this, that we'll be caught up into the presence of Jesus Christ. And that's true. But I don't want to spend too much time on that because we can talk forever on that and people like talking about that. I want us to focus just for a moment on the loud command of Christ. The loud command in and, and the idea that the text says the dead in Christ will rise first. The first thing that will happen when Jesus comes back is that people will rise from their graves. There will be a trumpet sound and the voice of the archangel. And the first thing that will happen is people will rise from the grave. The voice of Jesus. John eleven forty three says that when Jesus stood outside of the tomb of Lazarus, he called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Can you imagine when Jesus comes back, his second time, he comes, he returns and he shouts so loud that the whole world can hear it. I am here. I've come to fetch my people. Those in the tombs get up. I have come to collect you. 
Rise up. Stand. Please listen to this text, John 5, 25. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now, this is true theologically, and this is what I I believe will happen at the end of time. When Jesus Christ speaks at the end of everything, the dead bones will listen and rise. Take note, ladies and gentlemen, the next thing that your dead relative, your asleep relative will hear, the next thing they will hear is not your voice. It's the voice of Jesus Christ. Is there any other voice you'd want to hear? And then, and then after that, after they hear the voice of Christ, they will hear your voice. After that, because Paul says both the living and the resurrected will meet meet each other in the air to meet Jesus and to be together forever. Can you imagine that reunion? Can you imagine the depth of joy? My brother Tom, if you're with Nancy, with Jesus, you see your loved one again. You speak to him or to her. And Jesus is right there. You will never die again. There's no second death for you. The immortal has been swallowed up in immortality. The earth is done. Pain and struggle is over. The sleep is over. The separation has ended. Evil is judged. And the only thing left is for all of us to be together with the Lord forever. Paul tells the Thessalonians as he concludes it, Therefore encourage one another with these words. That is what I'm trying to do today. These people are dear to our heart. But this is real. I want you to know today, I trust what the Apostle Paul says because he saw Christ face to face. I want you to know today, these two ladies, just two of them I've put up here. I can put up lots of photos. Ladies and gentlemen, do we trust what the Word says? If we trust what the Word says, they are sleeping. They are not gone forever. They believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Therefore, they will live again. They will hear the voice of Jesus and they will rise from their sleep. That's why we are here. Because if we don't believe this, we're wasting our time. This is what makes it so real. We will see them again and you will meet them again. And you'll meet Jesus at that time. So I want to encourage us to grieve correctly. Paul says that there are people, he says, perhaps the rest of the world that grieve differently than Christians do. People out there don't grieve the same way as we do. The Romans didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe this life after death. One tomb inscription says this, I was not, I was, I am not, I care not. That's a typical atheist belief. To the Roman, death was the end. You will never see that person again. In Thessalonica, actual fact, the place we're talking about, they found an inscription that says, after death, no reviving, after the grave, no meeting again. Isn't it interesting that that's exactly the place that Paul writes to? And he says, don't believe the people in your city because this is what they believe. Don't grieve like they do. Because when somebody dies in their life, it's over. I will never see that person again. So the people mourn till the day they die. I believe it's the end. The Greek poet Theocritus wrote, Hopes are among the living, the dead are without hope. The rest of mankind grieved hard, really hard. Why? Because they thought that death was the end. There was no resurrection. Christians don't mourn like that. We don't mourn like that. That is a hopeless grief. We have a hopeful grief. Goodbye, my love. I will miss you. But I will see you again. I am sad that you are not here. But I know you are resting. 
My heart aches that you had pain in your body, but I know that you will soon receive a new body. I wish that we could be together right now, but I, I do know that we will be forever together when our Lord Jesus Christ comes back, and I'm looking forward to that. There is only eternal life in the Son. Some of you have family members that don't know Jesus, that are not in Him. Maybe you are sitting here this morning and you are not in Him. Talk to them. Pray for them. Only those who fall asleep in Christ will meet Jesus in the air. The Thessalonians understood the difference between being with Jesus and going to heaven. We are not looking forward to a place. We are looking forward to a person. The greatest person you've ever met in your life is Jesus Christ. And he is coming to fetch us. Weeping in hope is far superior than weeping in sorrow. I'm not saying today don't cry and mourn. I say let's do it. But in hope. So you've got a sense of joy attached to the crying. You're sad because of the past. But you look forward to the future. Hope. Is faith directed to the future. It's the belief. And let me quote you the words that David wrote about his son when his son died. Look at his attitude. He said, he, his son, will not come to me, but I will go to him. And I want to close off this with you and leave this with you. And I think it's pretty apt. Hope. Hold on. Pain ends. And so the pain that we have in our hearts, losing loved ones, Sister Kathy, Brother Tom, hold on, pain will end. Let's stand. Then we sing the closing song for this morning.